This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi and welcome back to the Money Markets podcast. I'm Leif Calaf. This week I'll be taking a look at what's been happening on the markets, including a look at what's driving the recent rebound. Also some pretty apocalyptic warnings over the future of the pound. Joining me on the pod today is Laura Suter. Hi there. So also on this episode, we're going to be looking at whether low cost food has faced bigger hikes in prices during the cost of living crisis. And I've been chatting to a financial advisor to help you all understand when you might want to use one and the sort of questions you should be asking. And we also have an interview with infrastructure specialist BBGI as the inflation protected income the sector is offering is one of the hottest tickets in investing at the moment. So the timing of last week's podcast recording was a little bit frustrating because Chancellor Rishi Sunak's announcement of more financial support for households and a windfall tax came out not long after we recorded. So obviously we were pretty annoyed that he didn't personally give us a heads up about his announcement. But we've assumed that anyone who wants to know about the support on offer will have hunted out that information by now as it's about a week old. But we thought it would still be handy to look in the market segment about the market reaction to that windfall tax announcement now that we're a few days down the line from it. So Leith, what did that mean? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what's what happened on the market, probably it probably depends what what stocks um what stocks you're looking at i mean you know windfall tax on energy companies you'd expect the main sort of price um action to be um on the kind of oil producers likes of shell and and bp but actually they kind of shrugged it off the kind of reaction of those share prices was, you know a bit meh it was you know we, 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 the the price has actually gone up since then so you know that might that might actually be because you know the tax has been talked about for so long that it was already in in the price it might have been the fact that you know the government included a tax allowance for energy firms, um, and that kind of allows them to offset some of some of their uh, investment in the UK against tax and reduce their their tax bills that way. So that part of the market, there wasn't really a big reaction that you know everyone was expecting. Uh, but probably the more interesting reaction, I think, was um, in some of the retail stocks um, on the London Stock Exchange. So we saw big jumps in the in the share prices of companies like uh, Marks and Spencer's um, next. Um, uh, ABF, which um, owns Primark, uh, and that's quite interesting. But that's that's a sign that, that the market thinks that actually, you know, the government's energy package, so not just the windfall tax, but kind of the broader energy package, you know, as a whole, was was a pretty major shot in the arm for for, for the U- UK consumer. And you know, if you if you think about it, that's really, you know, what 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 it was, you know, kind of a fifteen billion pound boost. For consumers, and clearly, it's meant to help with 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 energy bills, uh, but that has some spillover, doesn't it? Because that means that people hopefully will will maybe still have a bit of of leftover money to buy things from from the likes of of Next and, and Marks and Spencers. So, you know, there was the you know the, the share prices of those companies were up kind of about six or seven percent. So, you know, fairly 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 decent rise on the day. It's, it's worth noting, I think, that you know the share prices of of Next and, and Marks and Spencers are still very heavily down. Um, uh, this year, because obviously of, of the kind of the effect that that energy price spike um, is is likely to have on 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 consumer spending habits, but you know that kind of one day um, you know jumping the share price last week. I mean, it does at least show, I think, that markets think that you know that's that that Sunak support package does um, at least move the dial in in the right direction. Maybe 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 only a bit, but at least in the right direction. 
Let's delve into the other market stuff. So, Lathe, you've got some positivity for us all after a fairly bleak period for investors because we've seen a nice little rebound in markets. So what's happened and what's driven? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look back at the markets the last couple of months, sort of April and, and, and May, pretty been a pretty grim period, particularly, I think, for the, you know, the S&P um, 500, um, you know, which has fallen by around, um, um, you know, 15% over the, over the course of that kind of six-week period. And, and the last sort of week or so, there's just been a bit more kind of positivity, a bit more positive momentum. Um, you know, I think some of that is probably investors um, buying buying the dip after such a period of, of, of poor performance. And also probably adding to the buoyant mood, we've had news that um, the COVID restrictions are, are being scaled back in, in Shanghai, um, you know, kind of, which is, of course, a kind of major financial and, and trade centre. So... Um, that's 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 probably you know kind of also also helping people you know give give markets confidence to kind of pick up again. Now now on the back of that we've also seen the oil price um, creeping back up again to above one hundred twenty dollars a barrel um, for the first time since since March, uh, and that may well be kind of a sign that because of those kind of lifting of COVID restrictions, markets are also expecting you know Chinese demand um, to pick up again. Um, but also we've, we've also kind of had some significant news um, kind of which is building over the last few days, really, about the kind of EU's decision to to ban seaborne um, oil imports uh, from Russia, which kind of covers you know, around two thirds of, of, of Russian uh, of Europe's Russian oil purchases. Um, so kind of actually kind of a, a pretty significant move in terms of oil supply, uh, which, again, has probably helped to, to kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, prop up the the oil price uh, a bit more, so you know that that rising oil price, um, you know, is is unfortunately going to continue to kind of heat um, pressures on consumers, and and I'm actually afraid to say it's probably going to be particularly painful for UK consumers at the moment because of because of what's been happening to the the pound on the currency markets. Uh, so the pound has fallen by almost um, around kind of seven percent against the dollar um, so far this year, and and that hasn't really um received that much attention i don't think um probably because um because of everything else that's been going on of course uh but we've actually had a couple of uh, big wall street banks coming out this week as well and saying that um you know they've, they've got some pretty pessimistic forecasts for the pound bank of america in particular has been pretty punchy it's basically saying that sterling faces an existential threat and kind of likening the pound to to kind of an emerging market currency uh which is you know as you can probably tell, there's probably a touch of melodrama in there, but I think yeah, I think that yeah. you know the kind of the price falls that we've seen do tell us that there's something going on. That you know, kind of that the you know markets are are concerned about the pound, and probably the reason for that is I think the the outlook for the economy and, and perhaps particularly the the effects that the Bank of England's monetary policy might might be having. Because if you kind of um, cast your mind back, actually, kind of Bank of England was one of the the first kind of central banks. It was ahead of the US Fed when it came to hiking interest rates. But that kind of boost that that gained to the pound was worn off um, pretty pretty quickly. And I think currency analysts are basically worried that, you know, all of the things that are kind of uh, uh, kind of um, attacking the global economy at the moment, the Bank of England's interest rate rises might actually kind of push the, U the UK into recession, particularly, I think, and this is, I think, a big concern for international investors, is um, something that we've kind of, I think, kind of tuned out a bit, which is Brexit. 
um, and this kind of revival of the tensions over over kind of the northern the Northern Ireland Protocol. So all of that probably leading to a pretty dour outlook. And you know that weak pound is, I'm afraid, going to, to push up kind of inflation even more because obviously key commodity prices like oil are of course um, priced in dollars. It, it has been good for investors though, strangely, uh, and we saw this kind of after the kind of Brexit. Uh, vote didn't we when kind of you know the uh, the pound fell but that kind of helped to buy particularly the FTSE 100 because it, it gets lots of its revenues from overseas and of course lots of people you know kind of invest in in, in markets overseas now if you look at the the kind of S&P 500 it's down over 12 percent this year but for UK investors in sterling it's down only six percent so of course that's still not a good result but that weaker currency um, has softened the blow, but overall, some sort of pretty, um, pretty, I'm afraid, gloomy uh, predictions for the pound, which really is a reflection, I think, of a kind of analyst's view of the UK economy too. So, I mean, I suppose while we're looking at kind of banks notifying us of, of incoming threats, Laura, one one of the big banks has issued a, a scam warning. Uh, I believe what's what's it saying exactly? Yeah, so this is Lloyd's Bank, um, which has issued a scam warning saying it's seen a big spike in a new scam, uh, which is essentially where people are looking for a personal loan and they enter their details into a website, um, thinking that it's a legitimate loan company. And then the scammers will contact them and say that they have to pay an advance fee or a little bit of money up front before they can get the loan. Um and this is a scam and people are handing over their details, paying a fee, um, and then the scammers move on and, and people never get their loan. So this is, they say that they've seen a 90% surge in this fraud. But I think this taps into kind of a broader thing where um, we've got a cost of living crisis and we've got more people accessing credit. But we've also got um, the government issuing some support for people. And as part of that, that all creates a bit of a paradise for scammers because they see vulnerable people who need access to loans or they see an ability to contact people pretending to be the government and saying you need to fill in this information or hand over this money in order to get your um, government handout. And so what we're going to see is a big increase in um, scamming activity and it's just kind of a warning for people out there to be particularly vigilant against any um, approaches you get from people that you don't know or um, kind of non-legitimate companies because scammers will really see this environment of people being financially pressed um, and looking for more kind of credit and, and forms of debt as a real um, kind of paradise for them to prey on people. Yeah, so I mean, the scammers tend to go where the kind of big money and the the activity is, isn't there? And, and I suppose kind of while we're... While we're we're kind of looking at the kind of cost cost of living crunch, you've you've kind of also been been looking into sort of some some experimental data from the from the ONS, and I've kind of sort of read kind of actually sort of conflicting views about kind of what what this data says. So, kind of it, it's around kind of whether those who are kind of buying cheaper sort of own brand foods have been have been hit by kind of bigger price hikes and kind of food food generally. So, so kind of what's the what's the kind of actual story there? Yeah, so this all st started a few months ago when um, food poverty campaigner Jack Munro, who lots of people know is very active on Twitter, they raised concerns that poorer families were kind of disproportionately feeling the pinch from particularly food price rises. And the argument was that those lowest cost foods uh, were actually rising in price by more than um, 
than the kind of more medium or high level foods. So we're talking here the kind of budget ranges, the supermarket own brand, very budget range food. Um, yeah, so the argument was that the price price increases that people were seeing on that level of food was was far higher than elsewhere. So the ONS, the Office's, Office for National Statistics, which produces inflation figures, um, decided to do, and they, they say it's very experimental initial data, to look at whether that was the case or not. So they've kind of scraped all of the prices off online supermarkets for own brand and those kind of budget brand foods um, and looked at the price increases that they've seen. And actually what's come out is that um, on average, those ranges haven't seen any higher price increases than the average increases in food prices. So we've seen um, food inflation hit about between 6 and 7%. It was 6.7% in April. Um, and the inflation on the kind of small basket of budget items that the ONS looked at was 6%. So it's in line. However, within that, there is some massive differences in prices. So we've got things like budget brand pasta was up 50% in the past year. Um, value crisps were up 17%. Um, however, the cost of some things like pizza, chips, um, potatoes in those value ranges all fell. So on average, we've got this 6% increase in those budget brand um, food prices, which is in line with the national average. But within that, there's really big differences. Um, so it's, I think that's why there's been some slightly different headlines about this. Um, but generally what the ONS has concluded is that those people buying those budget brands are, are facing the, the same price increases that the rest of us are. There is one big difference, and that is where those budget brand items aren't available. What the ONS found is that the next cheapest item is a big leap in price from those budget brands. And so one of the arguments being made was that... Um, there wasn't enough provision of those budget brands. And so people were being forced to buy um, the next range up, um, which was also higher in price. Um, and that's kind of what ONS has found is that there's a big leap in price once you get through that budget budget brand, if they're not available. So it's interesting. And, and it's something that the ONS is going to keep monitoring um, over the next um, yeah, months Yeah, that years. kind of all makes sense. So yeah, thank, thank you for clearing that up. Um, so um, infrastructure. Um, now, that, it's a sector that is highly prized for its inflation-protected income streams, which are obviously quite important at the moment. And um, Chair's Deputy Editor Tom Sieber has caught up with Duncan Ball, who's the Co-Chief Executive of BBGI Global Infrastructure, find out, to find out about its portfolio, which, as well as tra- traditional kind of transport-based infrastructure, also encompasses schools, hospitals, and even affordable housing. Here's what he had to say. So, Duncan, um, one of the more recent investments in the fund was in a German motorway. Can you explain why this was an attractive investment and how it fits with the, the overall strategy? Yeah, thank, thank you, Tom. Um, so we, we made a recent investment in the A7 motorway in Germany. And perhaps maybe let me begin by telling you a little bit of our strategy and then talking about how the A7 fits that strategy. So at our core, we're a social um, infrastructure investment company. We follow a low-risk strategy. We're focused on delivering attractive, long-term, stable returns. We invest in important infrastructure assets, um, which serve society. So these are, we have 56 different investments. These include schools, hospitals, transportation assets like the A7 that I'll get to in a second, 
um, fire stations, correction facilities, affordable housing, and clean energy. Um, an important feature of our of our strategy is all these assets are availability based, so we're not uh, taking any demand risk. So on on a roadway like the A7, we're not uh, the payments are not subject to how many cars use the road. We get an, an availability payment as long as the road is available for for use. Um, so across our portfolio, we have a 99.9% availability rate. We're in investment grade countries like Australia, Canada, the US, UK, Germany, Netherlands, and Norway. We're paid by uh, credit worthy counterparties. And so all our cash flows are contractual and there's a high degree of visibility of these cash flows. So we have a very stable and predictable uh, business model. And um, these payments that come from government are also uh, adjusted for inflation. So we have a, a high degree of inflation correlation. So that means if inflation goes up, um, a lot of that is passed through to the investors. Um, so if, if inflation is 100 basis points, we get 44 basis points of flow through to the, uh, to the investment. So what's the A7 that we announced this week? So it's a 49% it's a equity uh, interest in a roadway in Germany. So it's 65 kilometers uh, of roadway that's being increased from four to six lanes north of uh, Hamburg. It includes 11 interchanges and 79 uh, structures. Um, it includes noise barriers and enclosed tunnel. Um, the construction was completed in December 2019 and the concession runs for uh, 22 years to, to 2044. And we're paid by the German government, the Federal Republic of Germany, which is um, AAA and, and uh, uh, the equivalent by both S&P and Moody's. So this really fits our, our strategy. It's availability based. It's not subject to demand risk. So we're not taking any risk on how many cars use the road. And that's, that's particularly relevant when people start working from home or the effects of COVID. We haven't suffered from any of that um, over the last two years because we've had contractual cash flows. Um, and, um, there's good inflation correlation and the asset, um, aligns with our ESG initiative. So, um, the, the, the new roadway improvements make travel safer. They make it more efficient. They reduce idling and, and congestion and, and, um, you know, and once we become a, an owner in that asset, we will take measures to try to improve the, um, uh, the, the ESG performance of that asset. Um, so this is it's so it's very much consistent with our strategy. We're we're really happy to make this investment. It's our first roadway in Germany. We have roadways in other parts of the world, um, and by pursuing this long term um, low risk strategy, uh, we've been able to deliver consistent returns for our investors since going public in 2011. We've delivered a 10.4 percent annualized return. We've had uh, strong dividend growth each year, and, and we've had a you know progressive dividend that we've continued to increase, um, and we're trading in a dividend yield of about four and a half percent currently. Given sort of since you launched the fund in in two thousand eleven, I guess interest and and capital um, has kind of increasingly moved into infrastructure, hasn't it? Has that made it more challenging to find the right assets? Is there more competition for assets now? Yeah, it's definitely been an area where there's been competition for for assets, uh, but we've stayed very puristic over over that ten year period. We've uh, we haven't deviated from our investment strategy. 
we serve a small market or we're in a niche market. So we're in that um, availability style infrastructure space and we haven't drifted from that. So we, we know that sector well and we, we know all the players in there. And so I, I, when, the, when an opportunity comes to market, we're, we're well informed and we take a, a good hard look at it. But I think one of the, one of the, the differentiators of our, of our business strategy is we're internally managed. So that means that we, um, we're not a fund with an external manager providing services. We, we all work for the company. So what that means is we've been very disciplined in our growth. We've uh, made acquisitions when they make sense and they're accretive to the performance of the fund, but we haven't been asset gatherers. We haven't been motivated to just go out and do the next deal just uh, to have more assets under management. So yeah, it has been a competitive market uh, over the last decade, but I think what we've demonstrated is that we've had um, investing discipline and in, you know, through through that last decade, we've been we've demonstrated we can grow, but we can do it in a disciplined manner. Excellent, yeah. And could you expand a little bit? I mean, you you, you sort of touched on perhaps why you're in the the jurisdictions and the the areas that you're in, but why is there sort of focus on on Europe, North America, Australia? What appeals about those geographies? And would you ever consider investing outside of of those regions? Again, you know, it sort of all comes back to our initial strategy and and. We, we want to offer a low risk product. So and we're focused on highly rated investment grade countries. So as I said, uh, Australia, Canada, the US, UK, Germany, Netherlands, Norway. Um, we're globally diversified. So we're not dependent on any one market because there can be times when uh, one market slows down. But uh, we've been fortunate in the, in the markets we're in uh, when, when one Activity in one market's maybe not there; it picks up in another, um, and we're so we're not dependent on any one market. We've got good diversification. The UK is about thirty-three percent of our portfolio. Canada's thirty-six. Australia's eleven. Continental Europe was nine um, percent, but that will increase now slightly with the uh, exposure to the A seven, and uh, the US is is eleven percent. So we've got a nice nice cross section of markets. Um, we're happy with the markets we're in. We will look at new markets, but again, we're going to focus on highly rated countries with stable, well-developed operating environments where the rule of law is, is strong and, and um, you know, there's underlying stability. People probably most associate infrastructure with things like roads and rail or sort of the supply of power. Um, obviously, education, healthcare facilities, you mentioned some other types of asset that, that are a fairly substantial part of your portfolio. So just wonder kind of how you define infrastructure. Perhaps you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we, we typically didn't get too fussed on the definition of infrastructure, um, sure. but that's changing a little bit. There's new legislation in the EU called the SFDR, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And under this legislation, um, BBGI is classified as an Article 8 products. So that means we meet the criteria for uh, socially beneficial investments. So um, a lot of really good stuff happens in our, in our portfolio. As mentioned, we have schools and hospitals. Um, our employees take a lot of pride in what we do. We're delivering uh, assets that, that, that benefit society and help communities. So I guess my definition of infrastructure would be it, it's uh, an 
important assets that deliver critical services needed by society. Um, and within that space, we focus on the, the low, low end risk of the spectrum. Um, so as I say, it's, uh, we, we, we screen all our new investments, they're all availability based, but it's, um, assets that are in, in demand by society, um, you know, delivering sort of things that you need every day. I, I think, you know, the reason we're not too fussed about the definition of infrastructure is because in this, in the space that we're active in, you know, where we're getting availability payments. It has historically been schools and hospitals and, and roadways and things that fit the you know traditional definition of infrastructure. I think where there's been a lot of um, uh, sort of shift in, in sentiment or, or definitions is when uh, fund managers are trying to stretch the definition of infrastructure to allow them to invest in in other other areas because they want to grow um, and we haven't suffered from that as I mentioned because of our internal strategy internally managed strategy we're not sort of driven growth by growth sake we, we've stayed very consistent and all our you know all the investments we've made align with um, we, we say when we're, whenever we screen an investment we want to make sure it aligns with certain um, uh, sustainable development goals, uh, UN sustainable development goals, SDGs. And so it's, it's good health, it's quality education, it's sustainable cities, it's innovative infrastructure, and more recently making sure within our portfolio, we address climate change and climate action. You mentioned there some of the criteria used when you're selecting, you know, potential assets to invest in. Would you could you give a, a picture of kind of perhaps how many assets you look at and how many of those sort of progress to the stage where you, you actually um, put money into them? Yeah, we 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 look look at a lot of assets, um, and we have a very strict uh, uh, screening protocol. So, um, you know that that means that certain things get ruled out immediately. Um, so we have an exclusion list that's part of our ESG policy. But then we we look and we say, is it in the markets where we want to be in? Uh, does it have availability-based cash flows? Uh, again, because we're at the low end of the risk spectrum, it, it has to line up with our uh, ESG criteria and, and contribute to some of the sustainable development goals I mentioned. We want to make sure there's long-term contracts, predictable cash flows. We we you know, we, re we really value inflation correlation. So that's something that we look at and, and want to make sure. We also look at the concession length because we we have a, lo a long-term portfolio with the average concession life over 20 years. So that's a consideration. Um, so when you, when you go through those uh, criteria, um, a, a lot of opportunities get dismissed immediately because they don't meet it. But we've been able to... Um, you know, we screen quite a few, but we've uh, every year we've been able to grow the portfolio and continue to find opportunities to invest in that meet our meet our criteria. Great, and and just to sort of um, round that off a little bit in terms of inflation protection, <clears throat> what proportion of the um, portfolio is sort of protected against inflation, and and how is that becoming more of a challenge? As obviously inflation you know, moves to, to levels that we've not seen for, for some time? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And, and how we are protected, all the payments we receive typically come from 
highly rated government counterparties. And all those payments have a indexation component. So it's, um, you know, in some, and each, each transaction slightly different. Um, so in the UK, a lot of it's RPI adjustment that happens annually. Uh, in other uh, assets, it might be a basket of goods that reflect input costs. So on a roadway in, in Canada, it might be a, a, a basket of goods that include uh, motor fuel and bitumen and labor costs and everything that's meant to replicate what, 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 what the cost should be. Um, and government pays us that uh, as an adjustment to the, the payments. We then have long-term contracts for a lot of the services that are provided. So the facilities management or the operations management is outsourced on a long-term basis. And uh, we pass on what we get to them. So, so it's not like we've got a, a situation where um, our revenues are being adjusted for uh, inflation, but our costs are going up at a, at a, at a greater rate. You know, our, what, what we get on the revenue side, we pass on, you know, we have a similar increase on the cost side. So there is a portion of the equity return uh, that is indexed. And so that's about 44 basis points. So it means that if our, um, if there was inflation was 100 basis points higher than our expectation, 44% uh, of that would flow through to the investors. So it's not perfectly linked, but it's, it's certainly well linked and in a you know in an inflationary environment that's that's changing quite rapidly, we take great comfort in the in the, in the high degrees of inflation correlation we have in our portfolio. Okay, we've had a couple of questions in asking about financial advisors. So you know how do you how do you know when to use one? How do you find a good one, and whether they're actually worth the money? So Laura's been chatting to Pete Chadbourne. He's a financial advisor at Plan Money to ask those very questions. So we thought it would be useful to talk about the kind of situations where someone might seek financial advice and when it can be useful for people. So firstly, what's the typical reason that someone gets in touch with you to get financial advice? Well, interestingly, it's not necessarily a catalyst uh, that, that prompts people to get advice. Sometimes it's just the sense of I've acquired a mixed bag of stuff over the years. You know, it could be pensions from previous jobs. It could be insurances relating to old mortgages. And it's just a sense of wanting to make sense of everything. Is what I've got any good? Um, it, a good example of that is where if you think of your working career, you know, when you first started work and the, the date at which you hope to retire, it's where people get to the point where they realise they're over halfway through that timeline and, and think, maybe I need to perhaps start taking this a bit more seriously. And more recently, we've noticed what we could call the lockdown effect, because we all know that through lockdown or as a result of lockdown, it made everyone question perhaps where they live or how they work, where they work. And for some people, it gave them a bit of a glimpse into perhaps what retirement might be like by having a bit more time on their hands. And some people liked what they saw and thought, well, how can I bring that forward a bit? So it, it's, it's they're the kind of reasons typically that people would come to, to get advice. That's so interesting because I guess I'd envisage that it would be like a life event happens in someone's life. So whether that's um, you know, they get divorced or they inherit a lot of money or, um, 
maybe some slightly more cheerful reasons as well. But um, I thought it might be some big event like that. Yes, I mean that too. There are certainly life events that will trigger it. Um, but but our advice would be to get a relationship underway with an advisor before you hit that life event, because that life event could be something quite traumatic. And at that point, you want to have a, a, a trusted ally in your corner, you know, rather than having to Im- embark on on the, the, the research process to find yourself a good advisor. And so what are the most common questions people have when they come to you? Is it really looking for help about where should I invest my money and what allocation should I have to this asset class? Or is it more to do with some of the more like technical aspects to do with um, I don't know, making the best use of tax breaks or things like that. Things like that tend to f- come afterwards. You know, wh- what should, where should I invest the money and, and, and am I optimising my investments for, for tax? The starting point following on from is what I've got any, any good and, my, and am I heading in the right direction is ha- how do I plan for this stuff? You know, wh- where do I start? I've, I've got, for example, perhaps some old pensions and, well, what do I do with them and, and what are the options for them? So our, so our starting point really is, well, well, what's the plan? What's the master plan here? What are we trying to achieve? And so once we've got that in place, the, the technical stuff tends to follow. Um, it tends to be the other way around. Okay, that makes sense. And then obviously financial advice isn't for everyone. Um, and some people might not want to pay for it or some people might not have the level of assets to be able to seek financial advice. So if we take that that latter group first, so what can that group of people do? So say we're probably thinking about younger people here who've got some investments, um, but maybe not enough to go and pay for financial advice. What can they do in order to kind of do some of those initial steps, I guess, that you're talking about themselves until they're ready for financial advice? The important word really that comes to mind is discipline. Get into, get into the habit of saving. And by saving, we mean deposit-based savings for things short-term, rainy day money, emergency funds. And get in the habit of investing a bit as well for the long-term because because time is time is, is, is on your side. If, if you're a young person thinking about retirement, it's a long way off, right? So I'll, I'll worry about that later. No, 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 start, start saving or investing a, a little bit now. And... Getting to good investment habits, good investment disciplines. So invest globally. Um, try not to make second guesses on particular sectors. Um, so diversify as much as you can globally within your investments. And understand what your risk tolerances are, rather than perhaps follow a particular investment just because someone else said it looks good or, or the performance looks exciting understand how it's going to behave and make sure it matches your risk tolerances and keep investment costs low as well. Uh, Another good uh, habit to get into is budget planning. So track your spending. Um, Most people say completing a budget planner is something which they don't do, but actually get a lot out of it because we all roughly know what our main bills are. We know what our incomes are. But not everyone has a good handle on what happens to the rest of it. Where does the rest of it go? And also, there's no harm in starting to make contacts with with a financial advisor who you might like to use in the future. 
So perhaps understand at what point is it appropriate to engage their services? At what point are they interested in helping you? And at what point might you get value in speaking to them? Because it might be sooner than you think. Yeah. And to kind of put you on the spot on that, if there's someone out there who thinks that maybe they could benefit from financial advice, but they're not sure if they've got enough money um, or they're not sure that their affairs are complicated enough to justify a financial advisor, what kind of thresholds do you tend to look at in terms of the amount of assets people have, whether that's in their investments or in pensions? I don't think there are that many firms these days that would set a limit in terms of minimum number of assets. Some do, but I think now it's more about the willingness to engage in the advice process. So it'd be more a case of speaking to the firm and saying, well, what do you do? What do you offer as services? And, and what does that cost? Because a lot will offer services that are on a, on a, uh, a fixed fee basis. And so it's it's a mutual agreement on both parties that there's value to be added there. I think the there's three criteria that I would say that um, that you need to consider about whether to get advice or not. And the first one would be appetite. Is it something you're actually interested in? Um, for some people, it's just a bit, a bit of life admin, right? Doing doing financial planning stuff, and so they don't have much in, interest in it. The second one would be time. Are you getting round to doing this? Um, are you are you setting time aside to do this as a this sort of financial planning, housekeeping stuff once a year uh, as a good discipline? And thirdly, it would be knowledge. Um, we don't know what we don't know. So again, I would speak to uh, a financial advisor perhaps sooner than you might thought, and you might be pleasantly pleasantly surprised. They might not say you need to have a fixed amount of assets to, to come and speak to us. Um, and so then for people that are ready to seek financial advice, what are the kind of questions they should be asking an advisor to make sure that they're the right fit for them? And, and what are some of the questions that people ask you to kind of work out if that relationship's going to work? The starting point really is to get a good understanding of the service that the financial advisor or the advisory firm offers? How do they do what they do? And then look at their costs of their services alongside that, because it should then be very obvious that that what they offer is right for you, that it's aligned. Um, And if not, keep looking, because not every advisor, not every firm operates in the same way. Very important is to get a recommendation. If you can, far better. Uh, to to use that as a starting point. And when looking at an advisor's uh, service proposition and their costs, try and avoid those where it's very obvious they only get paid if they've sold you something. You know, if if, if they rely on the provision of a product to get paid, then, okay, might be independent, but that's not impartial. Those are great tips. Thank you so much. And thanks for talking us through all of that. I really appreciate it. So before we go, I just wanted to flag that we have another podcast from AJ Bell called Money Matters, which covers a wide range of different financial topics with the aim to get women more involved in investing and become more financially savvy. So our latest episodes cover how to negotiate a pay rise. And we also have one looking at all the investing mistakes people have made so that you can learn from their errors. Um, So check it out by searching for AJ Bell Money Matters on your usual podcast platform or on Google. 
Yeah, thanks a lot for listening this week. We'll be back next week uh, with all the market news as usual. And Laura's also going to be guiding us through how we actually tackle one of those dreaded life-to-do tasks, of course, writing a will. So be sure to tune in for that. We'll catch you then and bye for now. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.